should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Welcome to Tuesday, July 19th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and it's an exciting Tuesday because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. John. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's exciting because it's convention week. <laughs> I was going to say that too, but I think you're more excited to say that. So you could say it for us. It's convention week. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. The Republican National Convention has kicked off yes. and... Um, uh, I I just really have one thing to say about it, and and that's it's already a hot mess. <laughs> are you referring to? I have to take a deep breath. Are you referring to Melania, whatever her <laughs> name is, Trump's speech, which they're now saying part of it was copied from Michelle Obama's, or the bomb square, or the uh, convention floor fight yesterday, or the fact that their biggest name yesterday was apparently Scott Baio. <laughs> Or that they've got a, a platform that actually supports uh, conversion therapy. Uh, wow. Um, so, yeah, which, which of those? Right. I was speaking to a friend this morning, and it's like I, I feel even more depressed. I've been depressed since Orlando, to be honest with you. I really haven't been the same. And, you know, these continued terrorist attacks and innocent lives being taken, plus the fact that what we're going through racially here in this country and and then, you know, the violence there is, is still ongoing with uh, three police officers uh, being killed in Baton Rouge, which is the latest. And then now the Republican National Convention and hearing these people that want to run for like the highest level of leadership of the free world say these things terrify you. I almost feel like I'm almost equating it to a terrorist attack. That's what it felt like waking up this morning. Let me let me throw this out there and no, I don't really believe this, but just to maybe help it'll be a balm for some folks. And that is maybe Donald Trump and the people who are at that level right around him all know he's not gonna win. So they can say whatever they want. These are not serious policy proposals. These are not people who seriously expect to have Donald Trump giving the State of the Union address. So you're saying that that was uh, an adult um, tantrum-throwing playground is what it was. <laughs> well, one of the other headliners last night was a Duck Dynasty uh, performer, whatever he is. Um, another was former underwear model Antonio Sabato Jr. I mean, this was not, let's have Gene Kirkpatrick come out and school mm -hmm. us on Soviet mm -hmm. relations. This was, mm -hmm. um, let's, you know, lead chance to have Hillary Clinton jailed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, obviously, you know, the, the convention has already started and, and a lot of the dialogue is very anti-Hillary. Um, I mean, gosh, incredibly sexist. And it's not even like let's target and attack her for, uh, you know, policies or, or you know, her, her record. It literally was very anti-female and I mean, 
it's so ugly. And then not to mention, you know, everything else that they were anti, anti-Muslims, anti-immigrants, and you know, uh, black and brown bodies. I mean, I, the chanting of Blue Lives Matter and, and you know, make America great again. I mean, all these suggestions like America is completely broken. And I do not feel that way. I feel like we have made a lot of progress and great progress, especially under the Obama administration. Um, so I wonder, you know, who are these people that go and and really back someone like Donald Trump up? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, on, on the voters level, we know it, it's largely folks who have been left behind, which is funny because they haven't been left behind as far as some of the folks who are Hillary supporters or Democratic supporters who are, you know, getting discriminated against, who, you know, desperately need college educations and such. But they're nonetheless folks who have, you know, white working class folks who have slipped economically big mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and they are not getting any help from the the Republican platform. Um, but they do have someone up there who's venting the, his spleen and which coincides <laughs> with how they want to vent their spleen. Well, we trust that you will be talking about the RNC and also uh, I'm sure covering the DNC, which is uh, next week. Next week. Yeah. Um, so if you guys want to hear from John and his coverage, you should tune in to his week to week political roundtable talk that airs here on the Progressive Voices Network during the Michelle Meow show at four o'clock Pacific Standard Time on Friday. So speaking of progress, especially when it comes to the LGBTQ community and the Obama administration, you know, just uh, a little over a week ago, it was announced that the Pentagon was lifting the, I can't say that it was a ban, it just was, there was, a, you know, not an unofficial policy that transgender military service members were not able to serve openly. And so that has been lifted or it's gone now. And so transgender uh, military officials uh, are able to now serve openly and um, we'll see how that all rolls out. But our special guest today uh, will be talking about his new historic fiction book in which uh, he'll go back in time and that one of his characters is actually a transgender soldier uh, who has contributed to American history. And that is historian John William Hughescamp, who's a noted Civil War scholar and research historian. So let's get today's program started. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Uh, so John is on the phone with us, and he's got his new book, Friends of the Wigwam, a Civil War Story. John, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Michelle. I'm honored to be on it. So let's talk about uh, Friends of the Wigwam. Uh, I mean, you know, I mentioned it before that there is a character uh, in which you, you talk about that, that although this is a fictional book, the character was not, right? That's correct. It's actually um, historical fiction. There are a number of true, all the characters in the book are real. Some are very famous people like Abraham Lincoln and U.S. Grant, but there are others not so famous that um, are quite intriguing, including uh, uh, Albert D.J. Cashier, who uh, you invited me to talk about. Yeah, let's go ahead and jump into it. John, you had well, to say. say I, I, found, I had not heard about her until uh, I got some material on your book and was reading up on it. She sounds fascinating. And... How did how did you learn about her, and 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 what can you tell us about her story? Well, uh, let's let's go back a little bit to uh, her birthday, which was Christmas Day in eighteen forty three. 
Uh, she was born in Cloggerhead, Ireland. Uh, she was purportedly a twin, had a twin brother. Um, it's a mystery as to how what happened uh, when she arrived in the United States at a very young age, in the early uh, her early teens. But she ended up uh, in Belvedere, which is by Rockford, Illinois, which is uh, less than 60 miles from my my home. And I decided to write a a novel about um, you know to enlighten and provide the truth about the Union and Northern contributions in the Civil War, because most of the people across America are very familiar with Gone with the Wind and the Southern slant, but uh, these characters I thought I could bring to life, they're actual individuals, and, and the most fascinating for sure is Jenny Hodgers, who at the age of 19 enlisted in the 95th Illinois Volunteer Infantry. Now, going back a little bit, uh, she was actually, uh, it was either a stepfather or an uncle that dressed her up as a boy when she was about 10 years old so that she could work in a shoe factory, which paid a lot of money. And back, uh, you know, here we are 150 plus years later, but back then, uh, women getting jobs in factories was, was almost impossible. Uh, women had to be uh, pretty much pigeonholed. As, as we all know, women suffrage uh, late in the 19th century and early 20th got the right to vote. Uh, those you know suffragette days. But anyway, getting back to the point, is she enlisted? Uh, she was about five feet three. She cropped her hair, um, raised for, for her entire life. All of her clothing, her shirts went up above. Very, very high uh, to the chin because she wanted to disguise the fact that she had no Adam's apple. So at the age of 19, she uh, enlisted. She's the only known American woman who successfully disguised herself as, her ma as a man at wartime. She mustered in and, for three years and ended up... Um, mustering out. After that, she spent 45 years as a man until she was discovered in 1911. Uh, she was a handyman in a little town called Sonneman, Illinois, which is uh, about halfway, about an hour south of Chicago. Uh, a Congress, a senator, state senator, Ira Lish, who she was working for in, uh, in October of that, that year, accidentally backed over her broke her leg, and the town physician um, realized that uh, Albert was a woman mm -hmm. at that point. So uh, it was, you know, the story goes on, uh, eventually the story leaked out, and it, she became national news. And the federal government considered fraud charges, and uh, the end of the story uh, I can continue here with many, you know, answers to questions. But the the really neat thing is 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 that in order to prove that she was in the Civil War and spent that time mm -hmm. over forty skirmishes and battles, it was horrendous. She had, she they called her messmates and her fellow soldiers for depositions, and they all said, "Yes, this is the person. This is Albert." And no, we didn't know she was a woman. Yeah. So it's just absolutely fascinating, and I thought I would get her out uh, into the mainstream, the public eye, 
where she belongs. And, you know, she was buried with full military honors in 1915 with the flag in her original uniform with the flag draped over, over the coffin. And does her tombstone have Jenny or Elbert on it? Well, that's an excellent question. When she was buried um, in 1915, this, this, the uh, stone says Albert D.J. Cashier, mm-hmm. because at that time, everyone knew that she wanted to be buried as Albert. Interesting. Now, what happened is uh, about 25 years ago, uh, I, I don't know if it was decided by the state or whatever, they put a, uh, another uh, headstone right next to it that, that gives her history as Jenny Hodgers mm-hmm. from Cloggerhead, Ireland. Probably a fairly well-touristed uh, cemetery then. I would think that, that would get a lot of people wanting to see that. Um, I, I had a quick question. So I can see why, you know, I can see the economic argument I can, uh, for, you know, going to work in a factory or, or, in other words, trying to pass as a man, especially back then. But why would she want to go to war? Especially, I mean, the, the Civil War was a, a hor- horrendous war for uh, what happened to soldiers and things. Why did she want to do that? I think that's the best question that needs to be answered. Uh, there is a lot of detail, or there's a lot of facts out there about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly we can't rule out patriotism, because if she, after experiencing Vicksburg and doing uh, a lot of, she, she was very famous in the regiment for being the shortest, but also very brave. Uh, so she, in, in one instance, the, uh, the Confederates shot down the Union flag, and she picked it up and took it up a tree under sniper fire to get it up even higher than where it was. Uh, she was loved uh, by the regiment. And uh, so you got to rule in patriotism, because if she wasn't a patriot, she would have left. She would have went, went missing in action or AWOL, as soldiers do. So the, the other thing, though, is getting back to this whole shoe factory incident, uh, a lot of scholars believe that, um, and it, it's documented if you want to go on websites and take a look at her, um, that she was probably looking for better wages. The, the Union soldier was paid $13 a month, mm-hmm. which was more than twice what anybody could make uh, as a female wow. outside. Now, there are over 350, is the estimate, women who disguise themselves or actually went not undisguised next to their brothers, husbands, and all that. But she's the only one that pulled it off, not only in the Civil War or during war, but for a lifetime. Uh, John, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I want to continue our discussion about Albert Cashier, who probably is the first trans man buried with military honors. So don't go away. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And on the phone, our special guest is historian John William Hughescamp, who's a Civil War scholar and research historian. And his latest book, Friends of the Wigwam, a Civil War story, uh, also includes a story of Albert Cashier, uh, who probably is the first trans man um, and uh, and so you know, right before the break, John, we talked about how Albert lived as a man um, when he was f- serving and fighting in the war, and also at work. But what about his social life? Did he live as a man? Did he? Do we know if he had uh, partners, friends, family who knew um, of of him as Albert and not Jenny? That is a, a great question, Michelle, and it needs a lot more research. Um, what I can tell you from the Civil War days and also post-war is that uh, he never uh, really uh, involved himself in, in sporting activities, kind of watched from the sidelines. They did, as, as I mentioned earlier, he, he was well-known in the regiment, but he was a little bit eccentric. Uh, people kind of staying away, which is... In order to protect the masquerade, you know, you, you obviously have to be very cautious uh, because they would send any woman back home immediately uh, if they discovered, um, you know, transgender um, identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the war, he went. I mean, this town of Sonneman at the time was only about 400 people. So again, he selected a small town was a handyman. He was loved by the entire town. Uh, they actually built a small home, uh, one the Chesbro family built, a small home for him, which he stayed in for over 40 years. And um, But no, I, more research needs to be done. One of the purposes of my book is to get this, these characters, and, and there are others that maybe we can talk about at another day, but this this is a, a a person who, in my novel, is the heart and soul of the book, as anyone w- would say who has read it. Um, the questions need to be answered. More research needs to be done. And, and now, in the with the internet, I mean, I started researching 30 years ago before the internet didn't exist. And walked all the all these places that she uh, 
went, even the battlefields. So hmm. a long answer to a short question, but it's something that needs further research, um, Michelle and John, and hopefully your audience can, can help the cause there. Sure. Tell us a bit, give us a bit of a setting of the world she grew up in, not just the times, but Illinois back then. And, and what was the relationships like with the local Native Americans, with the uh, white and black uh, residents? Uh, so this is a separate question to sure. direct Native Americans? Yeah. Um, great, great. There, another character in the book is a Native American, uh, and, and most Americans find this fascinating that we don't know about this individual. This was a uh, Native American from the Seneca tribe of western New York who became a lawyer and an engineer. So he had two professions. He ended up, Galena, Illinois, which is in the book, along with other northern Illinois towns, was a, a river town. It was bigger than St. Louis. And he went there on engineering projects and met General uh, U.S. Grant before, before the war, and they became fast friends. Um, he tried to get into the Civil War to enlist, and no one would take him. They would not allow him until Grant and uh, Congressman Elihu Washburn uh, got him in as a, a staff member for, uh, I won't get into all the details, but the 45th Illinois Lead Mine Regiment from Galena. Well, in the course of the war, he ended up rising and moving over to U.S. Grant's chief of staff at the Appomattox Surrender. He was the one with U.S. Grant that drafted the surrender document that Robert E. Lee signed. Oh. Native American. I mean, that central, central to uh, U.S. history. And unfortunately, Northern history, as I indicated earlier, uh, with, with Albert and with Eli Parker, that was his name, uh, is lost. I'm trying to get it back into the limelight. limelight. Why, why do you think that was? I mean, why do we focus so much on the... Uh really the, the losing side of the story, if you will, and I've just upset all of Michelle's Southern listeners. <laughs> well, it, it's um, a couple things. First of all, uh, a lot of the history books, uh, if you look, we've all seen the battlefield dead, right, from mm -hmm. Antietam and Gettysburg, which are on the East Coast. Um, there were no, very, very few photographs of the Western battlefields, which were huge. You've heard Shiloh. Yeah. You've heard Vicksburg, which is the strategic key. That was the battle that won the war. However, people think Gettysburg was the high tide of the Confederacy. So there's the element of, of history over the last 150-plus years where the textbooks, even for elementary children, focus on, if you were to ask three questions, who was the best general in the Civil War? Most people would say Robert E. Lee. As I mentioned, he was defeated and, surrend and surrendered to U.S. Grant, who never lost a battle. But, see, Grant started in the West. A problem on the Mississippi states and Missouri, the Midwest, were territories. They weren't established. This is the other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the soldiers that fought in the Civil War that went back to New England and the East Coast um, went back to families that had been there for a couple hundred years. All right, so their monument for the Civil War went 
with the War of 1812, with the Revolutionary War. Sure. And that's the problem in the Midwest. They're farming. It's farming the breadbasket of America. Do, do you think... The U.S., uh, Robin, to, to finish the point, second yeah. point here, is in 1862, Lincoln and Congress passed what was called the, the Homestead Act. Mm-hmm. Okay, it gave 160 acres of free land west. We're talking Oklahoma, Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas. My... Uh, one of my ancestors left Joliet, Illinois, and ended up in Nebraska with that grant. So with that, the, the folks in the Western theater, as we call it, Shiloh, Vicksburg, all those great heroes, packed it up, decided to get their own farms. They were young men. Why wouldn't they? Right. And so it kind of watered down the um, oral history, obviously. And then in terms of what I mentioned, the the battlefield dead photography and all that, sure. uh, it did not lend to the fact that the Western theater fought also. Do you think a story, like, hard. Do you, do you think a story like Albert Cashier's could have taken, I'm calling it a story, but I mean, a, a, you know, an example like that could have happened as easily on the East Coast where it was more established and people were closer together? Or do you think she was able to kind of slip through and, and, and kind of get around things because, because things were maybe less formalized and, and less densely populated out, out in Illinois at that time? Well, well actually, on that note, uh, that's an excellent question. There were 200 regiments from Illinois. Had, that, we're talking over 250,000 soldiers wow. in the state of Illinois, which was fifth in terms of enlistments. All right. The procedure of enlisting and, and, and mustering in was the same east or west. And what's interesting is the physicals back then, they pretty much just looked at your hands and feet, and they wanted warm bodies, and that's how Albert slipped through. Um, so, you know, I think that would probably be the best answer to that question, John. John, I, I have a question about um, what you're trying to do now. I mean, uh, not only have you included Albert's story in your book, but you're also trying to uh, mobilize, you know, uh, something to memorialize uh, Albert's legacy, right? And he would become the first trans man buried with military honors. And given that what's happened now uh, here in this country with transgender uh, military service members being able to serve openly if you were successful in memorializing Albert, uh, I believe that we should absolutely identify Albert as Albert, and he he lived and he fought and he he died as a man. Um, what are your thoughts? Absolutely agree with that. Um, we are working on a memorial. We have three um, locations in Chicago that we're we're uh, just getting started on. I had to make sure the book was out there first, and it was published in March of this year. We've got three sites identified, uh, and we're working with um, a couple radio stations uh, that are tied to um, African-American story and, and, and also uh, LGBT community. So, uh, you know, we think that um, this monument definitely will uh, happen, and... Um, to your point, I, I here's the interesting thing. There had to be more transgender people in the Civil War. The thing is, I, I know there's one other in Kansas that died um, and was buried with full military honors, but never uh, lived much after the war. The person's house was hit by lightning. 
But Albert's the most remarkable. Most scholars and uh, historians will say this was the most important uh, figure, um, probably in gender identity. So um, that's where we're at, and, and we could certainly use um, some help in uh, getting the word out. How can people get in touch with you if they wanted to help out with that project? Um, my website, uh, or the, the Friends of the Wigwam, the way you spell that is Friends, obviously, of the, but W-I-G-W-A-M. You go to Fred, friendsofthewigwam.com. You'll see also a, uh, a clip there that was done for approximately four years ago when I first found, uh, had contact with at WGN Radio, uh, TV, and they put me on a spot. That was when the book was being uh, pretty much tr- completing its, its final draft. But go to friendsthewigwam.com, take a look. You can click on my email address, and uh, you know we can keep you. There's going to be a tab there within the next, oh, probably three weeks that's going to describe what we're doing on the memorial side of things. But, uh, you know, what, what I think is uh, interesting here is that this is a woman who not only transgender people can claim, but also the hetero world. You know, nobody knows exactly who, what she was. But in terms of, you know, identity, certainly transgender uh, plays in here mm-hmm. for sure as a man. John, I want to I want to thank you so much for being here with us and for sharing your your book with us. I definitely think that it's worth picking up and doing some reading. Um, this is uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. So thanks for being with us. Well, thank you both and and, and your whole audience. I do appreciate and honored that I'm on it. Take care. John William Hughescamp, and he's the author of Friends of the Wigwam, a Civil War Story. So pick that up. I'm sure you can get it electronically and or your nearest book uh, store. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm excited for her. We've got a black feminist activist who has been doing movement building for over 40 years, and that's Barbara Smith. So don't go away. Come right back. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. 
it's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself you can feel loved and you can feel welcomed by everybody and i think that that's the ambiance that we try to create and and that's the message that that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to maui is that you know we're not just an experience on maui we're an experience of maui when you think back years ago how closeted we used to be and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people are, are not just you know tolerating but appreciating diversity and that's the message is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity I think that whoever you are follow your passion follow what you believe in follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Tuesday, July 19th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is in studio with us. Love Tuesdays. It's always a fascinating show when you're in the studio with me, John. It's always fun to be here. Um, so, you know, before we went on break, we spoke to a uh, historian who, you know, talked about the first trans man um, who fought in the Civil War. And so if you think about 2016, there's been a lot of progress when it comes to LGBTQI lives, especially under the Obama administration. Uh, one conversation that we have been, you know, discussing would be, have we made much progress when it comes to racial issues here in this country? And so I thought it would be incredible to have our next guest on the phone. And I'm kind of nervous about it. <laughs> She's such a big deal to me. But our next guest has been involved in social movement building for the last 40 plus years. She was at the forefront of the black women's rights uh, movement, being one of the founders of the Kambahi River Collective Statement, in which we'll touch on in this interview. The latest book you can get with Barbara's work is titled Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement Building with Barbara Smith. And it's a collection of interviews, essays, excerpts from books, and all edited, edited by Alethea Jones and Virginia Eubanks. Uh, with Barbara Smith. So let's welcome Barbara to the program. Barbara, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I feel like, you know, this will be the first of, of two or, or three, uh, you know, interviews that we'll end up doing together just because it, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about, especially uh, with you. So I really think that it's only right we start out by getting to know you, you know, personally before we really talk about some of the issues that we're facing today. And so in doing some of my reading and research, um, you had once mentioned that uh, during your coming of age, uh, during that time, you know, slavery had not even been abolished for even 100 years. And so it was the experiences of apartheid that really led you to want to do something. Um, uh, yeah. So, what, what, you know, kind of going back, what, was that really the case? Well, yes. And uh, it was U.S. apartheid, not the South African variety, which, of course, didn't end until uh, the late 80s into the early 90s. But that is night. 1980s and 1990s. So, uh, you know, we refer sometimes to the system of segregation 
in the United States and Jim Crow as apartheid, but it was not, you, you know, it was not, I don't want people who are listening to be confused uh, to think that I might indeed have grown up in South Africa. Right, yes, no, 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 absolutely. Uh, and even going back to the, during that time in the 80s, and now we're talking about what's what's happening here in the United States as far as racial issues, uh, slavery has not even been abolished for, I think that, that time has doubled now. It's not even been 200 years that we can say that. That's correct. Yeah, uh, the Civil War ended in 1865. I was born in 1946, so I was born 81 years after the end of the Civil War. So that uh, mentality and that history was not nearly as remote, particularly given that my uh, elder relatives, um, some of them had been born. In fact, uh, all of my my grandmother and my great aunt they had great aunts, plural, they had all been born in the 19th century. So the thing is that, as I said, there was a real link to um, that, um, s- that system, the system of um, chattel slavery. They themselves, no one who I knew in my growing up years, had been enslaved, but certainly their recent family members, that is, uh, members of their, the family who were no longer alive, but who had been a part of my uh, grandmother's generation, they had experienced enslavement. So, as I said, it wasn't like, um, you know, it wasn't something I had to watch on TV or whatever. It felt very much a part of the fabric of uh, my growing up. And all the people in my family, except my twin sister and I, had been born in the South, in Georgia. So, as I said, there were real links to that history. And then, just one more thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Crow was absolutely the uh, practice and law of the land during my uh, formative growing up years. Was your family political? or and did, In other words, where did your interest in this, and, and as well as your desire to actually do stuff about this, did that, was that inspired by your family, or did that you develop that on your own, or outside, from outside? Sources. Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. Like, people uh, often want to know, did I have family members who were involved uh, on a daily basis in uh, political organizing or political organizations? And the answer to that is no. They were too busy working. Uh, but uh, they were very politically conscious. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know them except for during my short lifespan. So, for example... In a scrapbook that I have to this day, my uh, aunt, I only know the maternal side of my family, but my maternal aunt who raised me after my mother died at a very early age, she had an, uh, a, an invitation, it's like a really meeting notice on a postcard uh, that announced a meeting of the youth NAACP chapter based at the church that uh, I was raised in. And so... Even, you know, as I said, long before I knew her, she was clearly, you know, going to those uh, meetings. Uh, that is, uh, being informed about and going to those NAACP meetings. And um, they were, as I said, they were very politically conscious because it was the civil rights era. And the civil rights era uh, completely dovetailed with my growing up. So in 1954, there was Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision. I was in elementary school, albeit a northern uh, desegregated school. Uh, in 1955, when Emmett Till was murdered, uh, I was still in elementary school. Um, the March on Washington of, uh, several years later, all of these major events that mark 
uh, important milestones in civil rights history, that's what was happening on the news. Right. Instead of turning on the television and seeing a clown running for president, uh, <laughs> you would turn on television in those days. And we only had three sta- uh, stations in those days, and it was black and white, but you turn on television, and often uh, you would see... Um, major, major events in the civil rights struggle. They were all happening during my growing up years. So they, these events would be talked about, and I was inspired uh, by them. I'm kind of curious on how these events and, and the changes they were portending, really, were were taught to you in school. And I don't know if you went to church, you know, in, in church. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin, so in the 70s and 80s, you know, this was we were hearing about the civil rights movement, and, you know, the, the assumption was... This was all good stuff that was, you know, good changes were happening. This was important. You'd, you'd, you'd we'd read about, you know, some of the things you, you just mentioned, and these would all be milestones in kind of these were changes that had to be made. But at the time, I mean, yes, you were in a northern school. Was it a conservative school? I mean, were, were the teachers kind of— It was of, a public school. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> one of the ten largest cities in the nation, Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. So— it was a huge public school system. I think we were the seventh largest city in the entire nation during that time. And uh, it was just one of the many public schools that were in our school system. And fortunately, the schools that my sister and I had the opportunity to attend were excellent schools. Yeah. So uh, to, say, to ask if they were conservative or not, the reason I say they were public schools, public schools really generally don't have any philosophy <laughs> except... Uh, our ideology, except to educate uh, the children who uh, come to them from the community. That's not to say that there were not ideological issues around public education. There were then and there are still now, particularly around racial segregation, class, uh, et cetera, economic uh, uh, discrimination, et cetera. But the thing is that, no, it was just a public, an urban public school system in the midpoint of the uh, 20th century. Having said all of that, uh, there was no discussion of the civil rights movement that I ever recall in any classroom context. It was that those were current events. We were studying history and social studies and you know literature, etc., science and math. Um, so there would be you know there would if we had a discussion of current events, it would be in passing. It was certainly not in any textbooks, Mm -hmm. if you see what I'm saying. So even though we were studying history or taking social studies, it had not arrived at that point. It was your generation and subsequent generations that got to look at that era and uh, and an historical context and through the lens of history. We were just living it. We got it, however, from the conversations and the things that were talked about uh, within our home and then also what was talked about in the church that our family attended. It was a black uh, Baptist church, most black people at that time, and perhaps even now, although I'm not sure. But at that time, uh, the most popular denomination for African Americans was uh, the the black Baptist denomination, because, of course, the Southern Baptists and other Baptist uh, churches were completely segregated uh, then, but um, and and to a large extent now. But as I said... um, the, the subject matter was definitely uh, discussed and exposed and delved into in the context of church because our minister was a 
civic leader and a racial leader at a time when we had very few black elected officials. So whatever had happened the, uh, during the week leading up to that Sunday, generally it would be at least mentioned, if not uh, talked about in depth, as a part of uh, our black theology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, black theology has generally been progressive, uh, not across the board, but the thing is uh, liberation theology, um, anti-racist uh, interventions, etc. Mm-hmm. So. I want to touch on um, identity politics. I mean, you coming out as a black lesbian feminist at the time that you did, uh, you know, to me, it was groundbreaking. It was bold. It was courageous. And then now in 2016, there are several black queer activists um, doing the same type of work. Oh, more, that, than <laughs> more than several. More than several. You know, yes, you're right. Uh, the the we, most we successful. We built a movement. You built an entire movement. You're right. And, um, and, and this idea that identity politics at the time, you know, is what it was called. And now today, I, mean, I think the more fancier term is intersectionality, right? Well, yes. Uh, and uh, it was misunderstood. I believe that it was in the... Um, pages of the Combahee River Collective Statement, which was written in 1977, that the term identity politics was first used. I've not ever had anybody be able to identify another use of it that predated that time, that is, it appearing in another uh, document. But when we said identity politics, we were talking about something very different than what the right wing talks about now and we're also we were also talking about something quite different from what um, people who are involved in our various movements might mean by it what we were asserting is that we had a right as people who were not only women who are not only black who are not only working class and and uh, who identified as working class whatever our objective class uh, status and who were not only lesbian that we were all of those things, and that we felt we had a right to build political action and political practice around the various identities that we held simultaneously. That's what we were saying. We weren't saying that uh, people who were not exactly like us had no value. We were not saying that people, um, that the only thing we were concerned about was our identities. We were fighting for justice and freedom. So the thing is, you can't just focus on your identity um, if that's what your bigger uh, objective, your bigger goal, goals are. But uh, we, we thought, we use that term to just try to get people to understand, like, a solely black political agenda is not going to accommodate and include everything that we experience. Nor is a white feminist agenda going to do that. We need to have uh, politics and political struggle that indeed encompasses all the uh, identities that we have. Uh, The term has been taken and uh, misused and abused probably, well, I don't think immediately, but certainly in intervening uh, decades, Mm -hmm. it has definitely been used negatively and, and without any real comprehension of what we had in mind. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that, because uh, we actually have to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to continue that discussion and how it applies to today's movement in the black community. And that is the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh, stay with us, Barbara. Thank you. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Very, very, very 
fascinating and awesome show that we have for you today. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miel, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is in studio with us. And our special guest on the phone is a, a movement builder, an, an activist, and has been doing this for the last 40 years. And also, um, I, you should really get her latest book, which has uh, a lot of her work in that. You can get introduced to Barbara Smith in this way. So grab that. It's titled, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement Building with Barbara Smith. Um, Barbara, right before the break, we talked about, you know, the, the, the right wing, the right wingers, um, (laughs) completely misusing this idea of identity politics. And here in 2016, we're still seeing that in which they've really used that, um, against Black Lives Matter. And, and we keep getting ourselves into this argument, or I'm seeing it, especially in the media, that people reduce what the work of Black Lives Matter has done um, and comparing it to other lives and, and and even using their own hashtags like All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Um, I mean, does it feel frustrating that, you know, uh, in, in a way that it's still the same kind of racism that we continue to face even when you were doing this type of work? Well, given that this nation has never made any conscious and concerted effort to get rid of white supremacy, it's not surprising. And by that I mean, even though we had you know, the biggest war that we ever had with the most uh, casualties was the Civil War. Um, I think, what, more people died in the Civil War than all the other wars that the U.S. participated in combined. So there was that. that the purpose of that, well... There are people who disagree to this day, but the thing is that uh, those of us who are who are fact-based know that it was a war over uh, whether slavery would continue and go into other parts of the United States uh, or the territories of the United States. It was a war over whether enslavement should continue as a U.S. institution. Uh, the Civil Rights uh, era uh, saw the breaking down of discrimination discriminating laws, uh, particularly around the right to vote, and uh, but also around desegregation of public uh, facilities and public accom- accommodations. But neither of those, uh, and other, there are many other examples, too, of, of the effort to get to racial justice. None of them said, why is all this stuff happening? Why is it like this? What is white supremacy? Why is it that uh, the black uh, uh, maternal and infant mortality rate to this day is so much higher than that for white women. Is it because black women don't go, have prenatal care? Well, 
What about the fact that black uh, women who do have access to quality prenatal care still have those uh, increased statistics around infant and, mort- and, and maternal death? This is, this is like looking at systematic oppression. Why is it that uh, people who, uh, black people who have the, uh, the uh, tenacity and also the fortune, good fortune, to graduate from uh, college uh, and even attain an advanced graduate degree make less money than their white counterparts. What's that about? Mm. <laughs> these, are, these are examples of institutional uh, racism, institutional white supremacy. So until all of that gets addressed, we're still going to see the uh, constant... Uh, constant uh, challenges that we face. And the issue, to me, like Black Lives Matter, is so important because it is raising and has raised one of the biggest contradictions in our nation state, which is the relationship between black and brown people and the police and the criminal justice system. Michelle Alexander wrote the groundbreaking book, The New Jim Crow, and that people began to be alert to that, and then we had this. We continued to have a series of terrible extrajudicial killings, often of black men, but also of black women. And they're just really pulling the covers off of that. And of course, that makes some people very, very angry because we're just supposed to say, "Oh, it's okay, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. You want to kill and hurt us, hurt and kill us? Sure, that's great because you know that's that's what we deserve." <laughs> No, it's not what we deserve, and I, right. as I said, I have nothing but admiration for those who are speaking out uh, about it at this historical moment. I, I don't know, recall if I said it last week on this show or I said it on, on my Commonwealth Club program, but um, one of the, you know, I'm a middle-aged white guy, one of the things that has most, most been driven into my head by the most recent, you know, the Minnesota killings, the Baton Rouge killings, um, was... Hearing that uh, Philando Castile, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he had been pulled over like 50 times mm-hmm. before. So you know, it's it's easy for a lot of folks like me who maybe only hear about these things when it you know results in a fatality and there there are protests. But you know, this harassment, you know, the supremacy that you're talking about is something that people are experiencing every single day. And how do you bring that home to? other people who are not going through that so that they realize, you know, this isn't just a matter of tweaking uh, police reform rules or mm-hmm. something like that. It's everything. I, yeah. I mean, how do you, it's change? a big challenge. Yeah, yeah, that's you, why we need allies. And uh, the term that people are now using, we don't just need allies. We need accomplices. Mm-hmm. And the reason they have upped it from ally to accomplice is because accomplice means that the person is really taking some risk and is really, uh, putting themselves in a relationship to the uh, status quo that may not always be uh, comfortable. Right. So uh, we need everyone to be concerned about justice. I was trying to look and see. I was uh, looking at my computer, but I didn't quite get there. Um, there was as a congressperson, King, uh, uh, who, who said just yesterday oh, that, yes. that, uh, that people of color have never accomplished anything. Uh, that would be of any merit, and that Western civilization defined as European uh, civilization just absolutely is superior mm-hmm. to anything that people of color accomplish. And I haven't had a chance to follow it during the day, but people were saying, well, 
one of the the one of the immediate responses is, well, then he needs to stop using all the things that people of color invented that right. make his life so much better. <laughs> one of the things they didn't that, that was not mentioned in that uh, list was a traffic was traffic lights. <laughs> Right, <laughs> invented by a black man. You know what I'm saying? A, a signal that would change so that you could actually have some reasonable, you know, safety in getting through, you know, uh, traffic and intersections. Uh, blood plasma was not mentioned either. Uh, Dr. Charles Drew uh, figured out, I think, how to separate plasma from blood that made uh, th- uh, the use of uh, blood products that much more effective and life-saving uh, for everybody, not just for a certain group of people, but I mean, you know, if you even live in ignorance, he will probably die ignorant. You know? Yeah, <laughs> he will never know. I mean, for a person like myself, who career, whose actual profession is teaching African American literature, like, what does he think I'm teaching? <laughs> <laughs> Barbara, I mean, we're uh, we're winding down on time, and so I have one right. last quick question for you. And and I hope that it's okay. We keep inviting you back because I really do feel like sure. this is the first can, part of many. Yeah, we can work it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the president did a town hall address to the country regarding racial issues, and um, I was quite surprised, I think, by the contents of that discussion. But I just wanted to get your thoughts. And I know when I say quickly, that's going to be, going to be tough. I don't know if you had uh, seen it, watched it, or read a little bit no, about it. No, unfortunately, I was actually uh, somewhere else that evening and didn't even know about it until afterwards. So I really don't have any direct, uh, direct, you know, information about the content of what was discussed. Uh, I know that there were people there from Black Lives Matter and that uh, there was some concern about getting uh, voices heard, but I really can't say anything directly about my own knowledge of what was discussed at that. Okay. Yeah, no, we'll follow up with you on that if you get a chance uh, sometime soon. I think it might be interesting. I, 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 you know, I think the first presidential address in terms of really talking about race, the black community and, uh, and, and police. But like I said, I, I was a little underwhelmed. Was that the one where the Texas Lieutenant Governor, uh, accused President Obama of not supporting police. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and that, I don't want people to leave with any confusion about that. I do believe that all lives are precious, and mm-hmm. I do believe that police play an important and critical role in the um, our civil society. But the thing is, abuses are abuses, and... Um, wrong is wrong so the thing is we can see we can have both perspectives we can understand the value of every person's life and i condemn the uh massacres and the killings uh, that have happened of police officers now twice in the last couple of weeks so it's not about pitting one group against the other it's just that when you look at the statistics um you see a, a very very uh difficult picture for us Barbara, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know you're busy, so I'll let you go. And uh, we will follow up with you for a second part to this interview. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so I would say that if you are, you know, passionate and and you're tuning in for the first time or second or third and you like what we're talking about, you should definitely pick up a copy of Barbara's latest work, which is Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement Building with Barbara Smith. And like I said, it's a collection of interviews, essays, all edited by Alethea Jones and Virginia Eubanks. Um, I think we have less than a minute left to close out the show. John, thank you so much for being here with me today. I think Always that was a, a great show. Thank you. Yeah, you um, pulled, a good, pulled together a good one. 
yeah, um, as depressed as I've been, and I really do mean that. I've, it's been really hard to get out of bed. Um, and we'll continue to look out for your coverage of all things politics Fridays with your week-to-week r- political roundtable talk. The Michelle Miao Show is here on the Progressive Voices Network Monday through Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you could head to michellemiao.com or commonwealthclub.org slash meow. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Thank you.